is uh, the second message of two on evangelism. Uh, we stepped aside from our normal series to address the need for growth in evangelism last week. But I, like I said last week, that doesn't begin with me telling you all to evangelize more. First and foremost, it begins with your union with Christ. When God unites us to Christ in salvation, He unites us to Christ in mission. And that's how Paul could read a prophecy about the servant's mission, and he could find in that prophecy a command for himself. We looked at Isaiah last week and saw that Jesus is the servant who brings salvation to the nations. And when the servant then lives in you, then you also embody his mission to seek and save the lost. And then we then discussed a little bit about what that looked like, starting with the people around you, the people that God has already placed in your, in your life. You pray and you plead with God and you ask for him to, to break through in their lives, and then you yourself enter their lives, and you build a relationship with them in order to know them, and that way you can then share the gospel with them in meaningful ways, all the while serving them. Well, today's focus is going to be only on the sharing piece that, uh, in that, uh, in what we looked at, enter, build, know, share, serve. We're going to look at the sharing piece and so we're going to and we're going to be in a lot of different passages. So this is instead of taking one text like we normally do and going through it, it's going to be more topical and we're going to bounce around all over the place. And the question that I want to answer is is how do we proclaim the good news? How do we proclaim the good news? What principles should shape our approach to evangelism? And I think answers will come by observing the apostles. So I'm starting us at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And you'll see why in just a second. But in verse 31 he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So Paul describes here a pattern of life that glorifies God in the way he seeks to save others. You see, the eating and the drinking to God's glory, it has for its context not just caring for fellow Christians, but interacting with people at the meat market or unbelievers inviting you over to their house for dinner. Seeking the salvation of others is not something additional to living for God's glory. Paul is describing here how we live for God's glory. And we do it in the way we seek to save others. That's the point here. Now, in saying this, Paul is imitating Jesus... In obedience to his father's plan to lavish kindness on sinners, Jesus set aside his rights. Jesus made sacrifices to save others. And Paul follows Jesus. And where the apostles imitate Jesus, we should imitate them. That's what Paul adds next. In chapter 11, verse 1. Shouldn't be a new chapter. 
Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And the context he's talking about is verse 31 to 33. That's how. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what can we learn to imitate in the, in the apostles' proclamation? We're going to return to 1 Corinthians 9 and 10 in a little while. But I want to broaden that out to other patterns that we see in the, the apostles' lives. What can we learn to imitate in the apostles' proclamation? And here's the first lesson. The word we proclaim in evangelism must be the gospel. It must be the gospel. In Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul rebukes the church for turning to a different gospel. And then he adds, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There is only one gospel that saves. There is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. The name of Jesus. So the gospel delivered by the apostles is that God has acted in the person and work of Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. And I'm not just talking about the cross and the resurrection. I'm talking about what the apostles preached about the pre-incarnate Son. And what the apostles preached about the incarnate Son. And what the apostles preached about his righteous life from birth to his death on the cross. And what they proclaimed about his substitution and atonement in the cross. And what they preached about his resurrection and his present reign over everything and his coming return. All of it. All that they preached about Jesus. We must preach that gospel and no other. Now, if we stray from imitating the apostles in this, we will bring to the world a gospel that is really no gospel at all. And many evangelism books and classes get so focused on methods and results that they forget the gospel. Or they skew the gospel. Felt needs end up becoming the primary concern versus our true need of reconciliation with God. The self becomes central to the message versus God and his glory. Sin gets redefined as failing to meet your potential versus what it is, rebellion against God. Humans become merely sick versus dead and incapable of saving themselves. Repentance gets traded for an assent to facts followed by false assurance. And the person of Christ gets reduced to a ticket into heaven versus the treasure and center to our ongoing fellowship with God. So beware of any approach to evangelism that skews the gospel or forgets it. Read what the apostles preached in the book of Acts. Model your message after theirs. When unbelievers have questions about God and his law or what the Bible says about the world and sin or the cross and death and heaven, take them to the primary source. Let them encounter the person of Christ in the Gospels and in the preaching of the Apostles. 
Not only will you guard the truth this way, it will also help others see that these are not just your ideas. These aren't opinions. They are facts that Jesus himself taught and entrusted to his apostles as God's word to man. Faith does not come through our own cleverness in methods or things that we do to secure results. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So take the world, the gospel. Second lesson. We must proclaim the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. We must proclaim the gospel in the power of the Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A primary focus in the book of Acts is how Jesus' spirit empowers the church to speak the gospel. If you read Luke and Acts together, just a homework assignment there, I love how every time in, in Luke and Acts, every time the Holy Spirit comes upon someone, they can't help but start speaking about Jesus. One example in Acts 4.31, the people pray for God's help. And it says the place in which they were gathered was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In Paul's mission, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5, he says that our gospel came to you. So he's, he's writing to the Thessalonians well after he's already planted the church, he's writing to them, he says, when that first time I came to you and preached the gospel, it came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's how we go. We go in the power of the Spirit. Some of you fear evangelism. I got up and started talking about evangelism last week, and you probably are like, Ooh. You're like, I'm not into awkward, right? You fear evangelism. You're worried that the right words won't come when they need to. Listen, the same spirit who hovered over the surface of the deep before creating the world, the same spirit who helped Moses lead God's people through the wilderness, the same spirit who inspired prophets to speak God's word, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that is the same spirit who dwells in you. If you belong to Christ. So you may be weak and scared. You may feel incompetent. But he is able. The spirit is able. Also, when we go, this means we don't go in confidence that our methods and our strategies save anybody. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If anybody is saved, it will be the result of God's Spirit working in us and God's Spirit working in them. Therefore, we must pray for the Spirit to fill us. We must pray for the Spirit to conform us to the servant's image and likeness. We must pray for the Spirit to embolden us. We must pray for the Spirit to regenerate hearts. Without the Spirit, our efforts will be vain. I remember a dear friend of mine, evangelist at heart, he's a church planter in Botswana. His name's Jack. And he invited me to start witnessing with him in South, some South Fort Worth neighborhoods and so I show up the evening that he wants me to show up, and I'm ready to go. I'm ready to learn from him. I'm ready to see what he does when he shares the gospel with people. And we did nothing but pray that evening. And then we prayed 
more the following week. And the week after that, for two months, when we met in the evenings for evangelism, we prayed. I thought I was going to share the gospel, but I'm showing up every week for two months, and we're just praying for God to work in us, for God to prepare our hearts, and for God to work in that area. And what I learned from him was this. Far be it from us to attempt the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. We must proclaim the gospel in the power of the Spirit. Third, we must proclaim the gospel in a manner consistent with its content. We must proclaim the gospel in a manner consistent with its content. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by, open, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul does not use disgraceful, underhanded ways. He does not practice cunning or tamper with God's word. And sadly, we see too much of this. People hold out false promises. Come to Jesus, they say, and God will heal your cancer. Come to Jesus, they say, and God will save your marriage. And he will actualize your goals. Come to Jesus, they say, and God will make you feel better. And he will slay your giants. Others will use entertainment to draw people in. Others will use emotional manipulation. Others resort to flattery, excluding harder truths about sin, and repentance, and judgment. Right? We've seen some, you've heard about some of these things. You know, some youth conference, and you've got a barrel on fire, the kid's name dangling over it. Where do you want to go? Right? Whole camp gets saved, supposedly. This is not the way of the apostles. They came by the open statement of the truth. Notice also that Paul doesn't proclaim himself. Verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. They didn't come puffed up with pride. Like they just finally got their acts together. They finally discovered the right teaching. No, even the Gospels and the letters include testimony of how far gone these guys were. They're not afraid to admit it and be very candid about how far gone they were before Jesus saved them. They knew that everything came, he says, by God's mercy in verse 1. And that shaped the way they spoke to other people. If you find yourself being harsh and snarky and demeaning toward those without Christ, you are being inconsistent with the gospel's content. Our gospel says that we're just as deserving of God's wrath. That we're no better off. We can't proclaim a message of God's mercy and patience towards sinners while being unmerciful and impatient towards sinners. 
it is necessary to speak hard truths. And those hard truths may be labeled by others as harsh or judgmental. That's one thing. The point here is that when we bring our message, we cannot do it with arrogance and self-righteous attitudes. Rather, we become servants of those we speak to. So do you share the gospel with a mindset of a humble, undeserving servant? Do you approach the non-Christian with the same compassion that God showed you? When you are speaking, do you use cunning or some kind of manipulation or tricks you learn to close the deal? Or are you coming with simply the open statement of the truth? Here's a fourth lesson. We must proclaim the gospel in a manner that's intelligible and helpful to its audience. We must proclaim the gospel in a manner that's intelligible and helpful to its audience. I'll start with intelligible. And I think Acts 17 is a great... You can read it. I'm not going to go through it right now, but only to say that you've got all kinds of, of people in Acts 17. You've got Jews who are biblically literate, right? They, the scriptures have for a long time shaped their outlook on the world. And then you have these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as well, and these people are biblically illiterate, they don't know the Bible. Epicureans were materialists, no creation, nature has no purpose, no future life or punishment. The Stoics, their goal was to make people self-sufficient. They, they, they taught pantheism, so God is equal to everything. And it's just fascinating as you make your way through Acts 17 to observe Paul making the gospel intelligible to these different kinds of people. It's like it, it doesn't matter who they are, what back he's able to just adjust, speak it to them, adjust, speak it to them. He shows sensitivity to what people know and don't know. He knows the categories that they accept or deny. He gets into their worldview. A worldview is kind of your all-encompassing perspective on everything that matters. It's, it's the lens through which you see everything, and Paul knows where they're coming from, and that serves his ability to communicate the truth clearly. And so, as you're going through, you see that for the Jews who read Scripture, right, they grasp monotheism, they know about sin and the curse, and they know God's promises... But most of them were blind to Messiah who would suffer, die, and rise again. Their worldview didn't allow them to read the scriptures that way. And so what does Paul do? Well, he takes them to the scriptures, like it says, this Jesus whom we proclaim to you is the Christ. And right before that he says... He was taking them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So he takes the scriptures and he builds into their worldview categories for a suffering and rising Messiah. And then he says, that Messiah, that Christ, is Jesus. So he lays the groundwork for them from the Bible that they already embrace before he even gets to Jesus. And he does the same with the, the Areopagus, except they don't know the Bible, and their worldviews very much compete with Scripture. They weren't like blank hard drives that you just download, a, download Christianity on, onto. No, their hard drives already had corrupt files 
that wouldn't just conflict with Christianity, but also prevent them from receiving the gospel in the first place. Right? You don't see Paul going into the Areopagus and handing them a track with John 3.16 on it, while their concept of God and love and the world are totally out of step with the Bible. If he did something like that, he would be lazy, confusing, and unloving. Instead, what does Paul do? He lays the groundwork upon which he can then preach Christ. He takes them back. So chapter 17, if you read uh, verse 22 and, and, and on, he, he takes them back to God and who he is. And then he pulls from their own poets in verse 28 and 20, uh, in verse 27 and 28, pulls from their own poets. And then he starts interacting with their worldview. And their poets were right to see something of God's nature revealed in humanity. But they were wrong to turn him into an idol of their own making. And so while Paul is explaining the biblical worldview, he's dismantling their worldview, he's showing its inconsistencies, and by the end he has exposed their accountability to God. The main point is that we're dealing with people here, not projects. In our evangelism efforts, we're dealing with people, not projects. And loving them well means working hard to know them and to know how they think about things and then building a foundation on which Christ is rightly understood and offered. So some of the first things you need to do is ask a lot of questions of people and then listen to their answers. Ask what they're reading. What books are you reading? What things are you interested in? What, what things are shaping their outlook on, on the world? Press, and then as you're learning them, press people's worldviews to their logical conclusions and then back it up and show how the biblical worldview is most consistent with reality and the only one that offers true hope in the gospel. Now maybe an example would help. Suppose you work with an LGBTQ advocate. And let's assume your relationship is one where neither of you mind sharing your views. But she's quite adamant that Christians have got sexuality wrong. They're just imposing external constraints. Now her view differs from others in the LGBTQ community. It's not so much the kind of create your own reality, I can do whatever I want view. It's the seek your own destiny view. I was born this way. I must be true to myself. Now the worst way to approach this is to impose on her a worldview she doesn't actually hold. You see this a lot on social media. And by doing this, we end up slandering and putting words in her mouth, right? And not too much better are the superficial remarks like, you know, you fight so often for various political freedoms, but I just want to say that true freedom comes in Christ. That might be true, but it's conflating categories and not really meeting her at the most fundamental level. So far better is to follow Paul's approach and address her own worldview and even be willing to grant when their worldview gets something right. Maybe like this. You know, you're always telling me that you must be true to yourself. It would be morally wrong for you to live out of sync with your human identity. That's what you always tell me. You couldn't be more right. 
Christianity affirms the same truth. The real question is how do you know your human identity? Is it just subjective, a matter of your own inclination? Or could it be that you've gotten your identity all wrong? Is there something objective that tells us what we are and whose we are and why we are? You see, the culture around us says you are your sexuality. The whole of your self-worth is found in fulfilling your sexual desires. But when that goes south, when relationships fail, then what? You've got nothing left to live for. And you don't know who you are. On the other hand, Scripture sets our identity in someone outside us who never changes and who is always faithful and who knows us in the most intimate ways. And this God stamped his identity in us. This God stamped his identity in you. Whether male or female, you're his image bearer. And he determines our destiny. And from there, it's not too, too far from further conversations about the image of God and how sin warps that image and what Christ has done to give us a new identity in him. You see how, how that works? Can we do it that way, Redeemer? Can we recognize that people are complex and love, love slows down long enough to understand them, to use Jonathan Dodson's words? Can we work hard to make the gospel intelligible to those we engage? Our manner also needs to be helpful. Helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you want to go there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is similar to the passage we read at the beginning. Verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. In other words, Paul may have had the rights to or the freedoms to act a particular way with Jews, but he willingly set them aside to build on-ramps on to the gospel. The only stumbling block he wanted before them was the cross, not his food preferences, not his education choices, not his political affiliations. At the same time, he made adjustments with Gentiles so as not to confuse his participation in a meal with idol worship. And so wherever Paul needed to, beneath the rule of Christ, wherever he needed to, Paul flexed to ensure that the gospel would remain the central focus, that the gospel's advance remained the point. In other words, it wouldn't help your Muslim neighbor hear the gospel if you insisted on serving him pork chops for dinner. Right? No, we're having pork. It wouldn't help your left-leaning neighbor hear the gospel from you if you insist on angry Facebook rants that misrepresent him.
Or here's an example from Rachel's grandmother. Her grandmother was a missionary in Zimbabwe. She said a preacher from the U.S. once visited their mission in Zimbabwe. And he preached the same messages there that he was preaching here. There was a big disconnect. He had a translator, but none of his illustrations made sense because they didn't come from their culture. Also, his closing point was how easy it was to become a Christian. It's as easy as the ABCs, he says, admit, believe, commit. And she's sitting there going, those words don't begin with the same letter in the Shona dialect. Not helpful. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of your listeners before talking or typing. So don't get so hung up on your rights and your freedom that you can't lay them, aside, lay them down for the gospel's advance and for building helpful inroads to the gospel. All right, fifth lesson. We must proclaim the gospel according to its rich storyline versus a simplistic formula. Proclaim the gospel according to its rich storyline versus a simplistic formula. Now, there are various evangelism methods out there. Romans Road, Four Spiritual Laws, Wordless Book, right? Way of the Master. And what all, well, a lot of these have in common is they kind of give you some big categories to think in, right? God, sin, Christ, faith. God is holy. Man is sinful. You need a savior and that's Jesus. Believe in him. Right? They all kind of capture those key elements in the gospel message. And that's not bad. They can be quite helpful in that way. It's helpful to remember uh, those, those, those four categories. But if we're not careful, we can forget how the gospel comes to us through a rich storyline that intersects with people's lives in very specific ways. Okay? So perhaps you've, you've heard the storyline of the gospel summarized this way. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. These big four movements in scripture. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And these movements in God's storyline answer some of life's biggest questions, right? Creation. Where did we come from? How, how'd this all get here? Where did that idea about marriage originate, for example? The fall. Why are things so bad? Why does life suck sometimes? Redemption. Who's going to make this all right? How do we, how do we go from here? What, what's what's going what's gonna to save us? Consummation. Where's the world going? What's the end goal? Every worldview out there is giving an answer to these questions. Darwin has an answer for how this all happened. Right? Freud has an answer to why are things so bad. They, 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 the other worldviews out there, they have answers to these questions. Well, the Bible is answering those questions, and it does so in relation to various themes that describe our experience. And so you can take these themes and you can run them from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis to Revelation, all, all of them. So guilt and shame. That's something we experience as humans. We experience guilt, shame, nakedness. And we feel that in this broken world. And you have people asking questions like, where, where does this come from? How do I deal with it? 
What can take it away? Well, it, and the Bible's telling you the story. Well, it came, it's not, it wasn't always here. It came from sin. And Jesus came to remove our shame and clothe us with glory in God's presence. Or you could take marriage and fidelity. We long for true love, but relationships are so hard and broken. Why? Well, they weren't always that way. God created them this way. Sin has broken them. Well, is there a love that endures that won't let me go? Yeah, look at Christ and his resolve to love his bride and bring her to himself. Justice and peace. All of us are feeling the moral fabric of our society unraveling in a hurry. Why is it, you got people at work asking, why is it like this? This is nuts right now. What can make it right? And you can back them up and trace that storyline from Genesis to Revelation. And see how, you can show them how sin has broken the world, but there is coming one who's appointed to rule forever and justice and is the foundation of his throne. All right? Your image and identity. Who are we? Where does our dignity come from? We are image bearers, marred by sin. But Jesus came to remake humanity into his glorious image. And you could go on and on with, with different themes. Home and exile. We should flip those around. Exile. This feeling of homelessness and longing to be home. And home in the new heavens and the new earth. You, you could, there are hundreds of these themes. Every person you know shares experiences that intersect with Scripture's storyline. Better yet, Scripture's storyline actually retells their story in the truest light and then offers them salvation and wholeness in the person of Jesus. And then combine that, combine those themes with specific characters in the Bible that people can identify with. got a married couple hiding in their shame without hope. Genesis 3. You got a bride who cheated on her husband. Ezekiel 16. You have a lonely woman without a comforter. Lamentations chapter 1. You have this guy in, in Isaiah 56. He's an outcast with no inheritance and no name and no community. And yet he's welcomed by faith into the kingdom of God. A slave girl who is oppressed by a demon and used for money. Acts chapter 16. A religious man who's trying to be faithful with what he knows, but he's still lost. Acts chapter 10. A religious leader who fears man, but finds himself intrigued by this Jesus. Nicodemus in John 3. Another religious man who thinks he's doing things by the book, persecuting and killing Christians. That's Paul. And it's here, too, that we find Scripture's rich way of encouraging people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of, of desperate situations and God meeting them right there where they are to extend His grace and salvation. That really helps you in evangelism. Because anybody you meet, there's an inroad to their story that the Bible provides. It equips you to see everybody's story in light of Scripture and meet them where they are. Whether it's depression or broken relationships, infidelity, abuse, family issues, race relations, politics, self-image, Poverty, authority, creation care and pollution, yeah. The Bible has gobs of inroads to the gospel. We lose this dynamic, though, if we reduce the gospel to a simplistic formula and then force that formula onto people in very superficial ways. All right. One more lesson, and we're done. We must proclaim the gospel 
alongside deeds that demonstrate the truthfulness and integrity of the message. Proclaim the gospel alongside deeds that demonstrate the truthfulness and integrity of the message. Romans 15, verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed, Paul says. Or how about 1 Peter 2.12? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so, then, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visit- visitation. Or 1 John 3.18. Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What's the pattern of the apostles' ministry? When the apostles preached Christ, they did not live in ways that contradicted Christ. They lived in ways that embodied Christ. Okay? Now let's be clear, because the church has erred in this way too... The deeds themselves are not the gospel. The old saying, preach the gospel and when necessary use words, is not true. But it is true that the gospel necessarily produces good deeds in God's people. And those deeds demonstrate the gospel's power to make people more like Christ. So when we preach how generous our God has been to us, people better see in the church a whole bunch of really, really generous people. doesn't matter your income level. They need to see God's generosity moving in His people. When we preach how Christ liberates us from sin, they need to see us pursuing holiness. When we preach how Christ came not to be served, but to serve, others need to see us laying our lives down. We can't just hand people tracts with no willingness to serve. We must also embody what Christ is like. That should happen in your individual lives, and it should also happen in our lives together as a church. Our lives together should make the gospel visible. That's what the church is for. The church is like a, a theater... And the world is our audience, and they should be able to watch the show and see what the gospel does in the life of a people. And when that happens, Jesus says it teaches others in the world that God the Father sent his Son and loved us like he loves his Son. John 13 and John 17. So when good deeds excel within a church, it has an impact outside the church. Others look into the life of God's people and they see the love of Christ made visible. So here's a question. If we packed up shop and we moved to another meeting location in Fort Worth, Would White Settlement even know it? Would White Settlement even feel a loss? Would our neighbors know the difference? Would your neighbors count it a loss if you moved out of your neighborhood? 
Would they be talking at home saying, man, we missed their hospitality and we missed their generosity and we missed their servant-hearted attitudes? It is the Lord who saves, but he uses the church. He uses you. So how can our good deeds make our witness more compelling? Do our lives show integrity to the message that we are preaching to others and we're telling them to believe? Let's pray for them to do so. So those are a few lessons from the apostles to imitate in evangelism. I certainly haven't exhausted everything that could be said, but I hope it's given us a good starting place, maybe a framework from which to evaluate other approaches. There's a lot to consider. Maybe you've seen that there's a lot for you to change, a lot for you to grow in. Maybe it's so much to consider that you're afraid to even lean into evangelism. Like, if that's what it involves, I don't know if I'm, I, I'm ready for that. I want to say the Lord's grace is sufficient for you, too. You don't need to fear. The servant himself is alive, and he is living in you. He has given you of his spirit to help. You're not going to get everything perfect all the time. I imagine some of us could probably even look back on the way that God saved us, and we probably have criticisms for it, don't we? That guy didn't say this, that guy didn't teach me this, that church did this wrong in evangelism, and that church sold me this bill of goods, and that church, you probably have, and yet, imperfect as those methods were, the Lord's gospel still saved you. He still brought you to faith in Jesus because it's his word that ultimately saves. He has chosen to place that word, that treasure of the gospel, in weak and broken vessels. And he has appointed you to take it to the nations. So no matter how you're feeling today about how incompetent you are, how weak you are, how afraid you are. He likes using people like that because he gets all the glory when people are saved. Our job is simply to be faithful with that treasure of a gospel that we've been entrusted with, be faithful with the grace that's given to us today, and then trust God with the results. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. I pray that you would help us all grow in this task of evangelism, that you would make us zealous to share the gospel with others and bring it into their lives. And through our labors, would you help many to bow their knee to Christ alongside of us, to sing the same songs that we sang today about grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.